Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. For centuries now, we humans have been plundering the planet to build society as we know it today, leaving current and future generations to deal with the consequences. Climate change, a spiraling mass extinction, a global pandemic, these all result from human development up to this day. But young people aren't just throwing their hands up as the world unravels around them. Instead, we're witnessing a growing youth movement that's demanding radical action from world leaders. And soon, they'll be among those leaders themselves. So today, we're launching a mini-series in collaboration with the Youth and Landscapes Initiative about how young people are taking charge of their own future. In this first episode, we're joined by two trailblazing youth activists to explore how they and their peers are revolutionizing climate politics, and what we can expect to see from them in the years to come. Welcome everyone, my name is Irini, and on behalf of the Youth and Landscapes Initiative and the Global Landscapes Forum, I welcome you to our GLF Live. Um, we're sending a huge welcome to all of you, wherever you are in the world, and we're hoping that you are healthy and happy. Uh, thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Um, as you can probably guess from our title, today we're going to jump into the world of politics and specifically biodiversity and climate politics. And we're going to see how young people all around the world are changing, shaping and fighting for a better future for people and the planet. Um, we have with us here today and we are very, very happy to, to do so, to amazing guest, Amelia Araun, the Regional Coordinator of the Latin American and the Caribbean Regional Chapter of the Global Youth Biodiversity Network, and also the co-coordinator of the CBD Women's Group, the Convention on Biological Diversity Women's Group, and Tiagosi Ude, the Chairperson of the Executive Global Board of Plant for the Planet, the Global Focal Point for the SDG 7, um, and member of UNGO, the youth constituted to the UNFCCC. Uh, Amelia and Chiagozi, Chiagozi and Amelia, welcome. And thank you for coming on board today to, to share your story with our audience. Um, so I would like to start with Amelia. This question is for both of you, but let's hear from Amelia first. How are you feeling uh, today? How is it there? How is it with COVID? And how are you feeling for being with us today? And of course, introduce yourself to us. Thank you. Hi, Irini. Hi, Chagotzi. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation to this very special dialogue. It is a pleasure for me to be with all of you, sending a lot, uh, lot tons of greetings from Mexico. And well, it, it's going to be like super exciting to share about how we are uh, trying to shape biodiversity uh, politics. And also, I must uh, tell everyone that what I'm going to share during this talk is on my own and not particularly the, the organizations that I'm representing. Cool. Thank you so much. What about you, Chegozi? How are you feeling for being with us today? You're absolutely excited. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I am joined from Abuja, Nigeria, and I am, I am super excited to have this, this conversation about uh, Changing biodiversity and climate politics. Um, it's it's been a quite uh, strange time, of course, that everybody is going through now. So it feels refreshing uh, looking back uh, the last seven months, what has happened, and how we progress from here. So happy to be here, and I will be sharing most of my personal opinion. Yeah. Cool. That's amazing. Okay. 
So, uh, to start with, I would like to hear some information from you on how did you get involved with the projects you are working on and, um, for example, you, Amelia, how did you get involved with the global biodiversity politics and then you, Chiagozi, how did you get involved with the global climate politics? So, let's start with uh, Chiagozi this time. Yeah, it, it was quite a journey. Like, uh, I, of course, I have been passionate about the environment, you know, from, from a very long time, uh, from my high school days, and then got into the university, continued. You know, it, it scaled up a bit in the university because I started volunteering for some international organizations. The first one was Tunza Eco Generation, uh, which is based in, in South Korea, in Seoul, South Korea. It's, it's a program of the Samsung Engineering in partnership with uh, UN Environment. And I was writing a lot of articles, like at least twice in a month uh, uh, for the for them that is published. You know, I have to go a lot. I have to do a lot of physical work to be able to write those articles. I have to go into the bushes to check species that are going extinct and all of those. It, it costs me a lot of resources, like my personal resources that you know, <laughs> being a university student, it was quite uh, very challenging, but it was something I loved, so I never minded doing it. Uh, a lot of my friends said that you know, I, I was crazy because sometimes I even sacrificed my classes to go and do these things. But then, yeah, uh, through that, I, I, discovered, I discovered an organization called Plan for the Planet. They invited me for uh, a first W summit that I was going to attend, and that was the first time <laughs> I even I uh, went to an airport, you know, so uh, that was the first time I was on a plane and it was in 2015 actually. And so I, I flew to, to Munich for that summit. And then it was a lot of, it was very significant for me because it built my capacity a lot in, in because before I was talking about the environment a lot, global warming, but not necessarily, you know, knowing the, uh, the concrete details at that time, but going to the summit, it built a lot of my capacity in negotiation, you know, networking with my friends who we are also engaged and exposed in different spaces. And uh, that made it very seamless for me also to discover like organizations like Yongo, which is the international space for uh, global climate negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, everything was super fast. In the next six months, I was like an expert already because there are a lot of information leading up to Paris Agreement. I mean, uh, the COP21 in Paris then, and it was a whole lot of things. So I, I joined Yongo. And uh, yeah, three years after, I became younger focal point as well. And of course, that is the zenith in terms of your engagement in climate space within uh, within the, the UN space. And it's been quite a journey. A lot of lot of experiences, a lot of challenges, a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm, a lot of colleagues that inspire you, a lot of colleagues that push you, you know, to, to do your best. Yeah, it's it's quite a, a lot of things mixed together, but overall, it's been a very fascinating uh, experience. Thank you for sharing that. It's such an inspirational story, and I'm sure that a lot of young people are right now in the same position as you, like sacrificing a lot of their personal time and a lot of resources to just to, to to just make a better world. So, thank you for sharing your story with us. And what about you, Amelia? How did you get involved to to the global biodiversity politics? Well, my story is kind of similar to Chiagotzi because it also starts like a while ago from a very young age. Uh, I started at the beginning just being like a feminist activist because women's rights have been a central issue in my life since high school. But it was a little later that the work made, uh, made complete sense to me 
because through a personal experience with nature, uh, like being in the middle of the forest alone, I understood the deep relationships between the exploitation of nature and the situation of violence and inequality against women. And since then, I have dedicated myself to work to build a, a better world or uh, full of social and environmental justice, trying to, to mix these, uh, these two dimensions of, 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 of the world, no? like environmentalism and feminism. And since then, like in my early, early young age, I started by forming a local NGO here in, in Querétaro, where, where I'm based, with more young colleagues also, like the teamwork is a, a base for, for all of the transformation we are aiming. And uh, we, what we try back then is to implement forest restoration projects and also environment to, 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 um, to have a say in the environmental governance here in our, in our, in our region. So we uh, participated directly in, in governance processes, but also what we, what we saw is that we, uh, we couldn't do that uh, on our own or in, a, in, in an individual level, even if we are an organization. So what we did is to, to try to, to design and implement more other projects and activities regarding training other youth and also community groups to participate in subnational and national governance processes. And that work with this NGO, which is Ecomache, and it is in my heart. Um, from that, uh, that eventually led me to the negotiations of the Convention on Biological Diversity, better known as the CBD, uh, particularly uh, from the COP13, which was held here in Mexico on 2016. And from there, I became fully involved in the CBD youth and women's constituencies. And what we try to do among those groups are to influence the negotiations, particularly uh, on, on uh, the, the, my objective is to, to uh, mainstream human rights approach in, ad, in an adequately uh, form that, that um, it um, are really addressed in, in all the CBD processes, all the CBD work, the decisions. And right now, uh, what we are trying to, uh, what we are pushing for, is to have a human rights approach and a gender perspective into the post 2020 strategic uh, plan. And but not only there, what also uh, my objective is and my work is um, trying to push for the implementation at national and local levels. So that means that people uh, at the local, at the ground. We really need to know about this convention, and we need to have the capacities, the knowledge, and the experience to 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 participate in the negotiations uh, at all levels, but also to have the resources to implement it. So, yeah, but, but for my side, uh, what I'm working more is on the on on how to strengthen the capacities of women and girls to participate in the biodiversity governance processes. Thank you, Amelia, for sharing your story. This is very beautiful. And what I get from both of you is that you have this like enthusiasm and will to, to share back the experience that you were like blessed to have, that you worked to have with other young people. And I think this is very, very important that you're both creating and working in spaces that inspire other young people to also get involved. So moving to my next question, 
Um, as um, we already know by now, uh, Chiagos is working a lot around the framework of conventional climate change, while Amelia is working more on the conventional biological diversity. And these two conventions very often have contradictive narratives um, within them. Uh, there, there is a like kind of a I wouldn't say dispute, but I would say kind of a distance between the climate and the biodiversity narrative, while there are so many voices trying to, to tell everyone that climate and biodiversity are basically should be addressed together and we shouldn't address one without addressing the other. So I would like to, to ask both of you, and I would like Chiagosa to ask to answer first, where is the framework convention on climate change today? What is happening in 2020? on the UNFCCC, and how can we foster better collaboration between the climate and the biodiversity narrative? Yet to start, where we are now is that um, this year, it's, it's a year where a lot of parties to the Paris Agreement are updating or enhancing their national vitamin contributions. So just to break it down, is that after the COP21 in Paris, we have the Paris Agreement, in, uh, during the COP22 in, in Poland, I mean, no, during the COP24 in Poland, that was four COPs after, uh, three COPs after, after the Paris Agreement, we had, we tried to have the, the rule book for, for the Paris Agreement to agree on how to implement the Paris Agreement. That process is not complete yet. So now, this year, uh, or just before this year, when we were in Madrid last year for the COP25, there was disagreement at the end because we could not agree on one major area, which is the Article 6, which talks about the carbon markets, how the emissions are calculated, how member states you know, can, can uh, calculate their contributions to mitigating and adapting for climate change. So currently that leaves us in a place where we don't have a complete rulebook for the implementation of Paris Agreement and also leaves us in a place where member states or parties to the Paris Agreement are updating their nationally determined contributions, which is the national climate policy through which member states are meeting their pledges or their commitments to the Paris Agreement. Uh, as currently we have close to 10 parties that have submitted their enhanced uh, national determined contributions, and we expect uh, other parties to keep submitting their enhanced NDCs until the next COP, which is COP26 in, in, in the UK next year, which is 2021. Because this year, because of the, the COVID pandemic, we are not having the COP uh, that should happen in, in Glasgow and Scotland. So it's now postponed to, to next year. And that also, yeah, maybe, maybe during the next question, I can also elaborate on this because it comes with its own challenges, its some pros and cons. and definitely we are behind schedule on how we should be working to, to meet the objectives of the Paris Agreement. We are behind schedule on the SDG goals of 2030. We are behind schedule all around. And we really, really, really need to, you know, to speed up our pace if we are to, uh, to avoid or to mitigate disastrous climate uh, consequences. And then when you talk about how uh, the, the, the pandemic has probably you know, uh, affected this convention. It has affected in a couple of ways, which, of course, for, for climate change primarily, is that for me, what I've picked from it is that there is a lot that the government can do. There is a lot that the parties can do. And we've seen clearly, and they have also acknowledged that they've been lying to us for a long time. For example, when the government say they can't do this, they don't have money for this and that, we know it's, it's complete lie because this, this can happen. 
The money is there for climate financing. The will can be there if we're serious enough, if we're truthful enough to ourselves to, to do what it takes, you know, to mitigate uh, massive carbon emissions. We can shut down the economy when, it, when the need arises. Like this year, for example, you find countries like China reducing their air pollution drastically, reducing their emission drastically. In fact, what it could have taken maybe five years for them to achieve in terms of emission re reduction, they are achieving in one year. Uh, if they keep at that pace where things are managed in very sustainable way, then we can have some hope of achieving the Paris Agreement. So it, it has shown us that we have to be more ambitious, that our NDCs have to be more ambitious, that we as young people are not demanding something that could be described as utopia. We are demanding something realistic. And our governments can do this, you know, uh, going by what the pandemic has done. I mean, governments are listening to scientists. They don't do that before they don't do this. You know, people like Trump are listening to doctors, uh, you know, infectious disease professionals to, to guide him on how to manage the pandemic. He, he, he doesn't listen to scientists, but he, he was forced to do so now. A lot of other governments, they don't listen to scientists, but now they have to do so. So it tells us that this is possible. We just need to, to, to uh, you know, provide, uh, place the right priorities on them and it can happen. So before we were thinking maybe we're being too ambitious with our demands, you know, across different thematic areas of climate change. But now it's very clear to us that we are not even ambitious enough because with the pandemic, what has happened and the sacrifices everyone has made, including the governments, we think we should be, or I think personally that we should be even more ambitious because a lot more can happen uh, with, with the government's commitment. Talking about also how it's stands side by side with the Biodiversity Convention, we can say that um, it's not, uh, it's, 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 yes, it's very important that both of them are, you know, a bit matched in, that they're a bit, uh, not necessarily matched completely, but that they work hand in hand because you cannot separate conversations about climate change and biodiversity. They are nature, they are interconnected in many ways than one, you know, and I think I've always said this, that in terms of interagency collaboration, UN is, is a bad example like that. And this has to be improved upon. I've said it to a lot of high-level sessions where, you know, we, we've had to, to tell the UN, you have to look inwards. You have to work together amongst yourself. Of course, there are mandate issues within the UN. There are sensitivities about, or the UNFCCC has this mandate, UNESCO has a bigger mandate, the UN environment has a wider mandate. You know, all these mandate issues, it's not necessary. This is 2020. You know, we have to move on. We have to solve practical problems and the UN has enough agencies, they have enough tools, they have enough resources within what they what currently exists to solve this problem. The only thing one thing, work together. Keep your mandates aside. Work together. Of course we know the sensitivities about um, uh, the mandates and how you have to you know account for your funding, how you have to require more funding uh, for all this we understand the sensitivities, but you have to work out a way that UN agencies work together in sufficient and effective interagency collaboration. For example, the UN Biodiversity and the UNFCCC could host a joint session. It could be, you know, a, a, a joint session in between both of their, their COPs, in between both of their conference of parties on issues that are cross-cutting and very interlinking for, for them. So I think if the UN leverages on their, on their interagency collaboration, which at, at the moment doesn't exist, uh, they should be able to solve more problems in here. And I think biodiversity and climate change should go hand in hand in every conversation because it's very hard. It's almost impossible to separate. Yeah, totally. Thank you. I... Thank you. Yeah, go on, Amelia. Thank you.
No, I was going to, to agree with, uh, with Chiagotzi because also from our side, uh, like what we have been discussing in the uh, CBD constituency is that everything is interconnected. But I'm going to go into that uh, point later. First, I want to uh, answer your first question about where we are uh, at this point regarding the CBD. And yeah, as, as, as you mentioned it, and also as maybe all, all the people that are looking at this conversation, you are aware that this was supposed to be the 2020 super year for biodiversity, for, for nature, and it is in some way, you know, because we are looking into nature, but not necessarily from the perspective that we were expecting to, you know? And well, uh, this was supposed to be the super year for the CBD uh, convention, uh, or, or for the Convention on Biodiversity, because we were supposed to adopt our third strategic plan, which is the famous post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. And this, uh, uh, this document is uh, well, a text in where countries uh, were supposed to write uh, the concrete commitments that they will apply from 2020 to 2030, with the main objective of hard biodiversity laws, and also to adopt measures to restore it and to foster its sustainable use. And well, for uh, to to achieve that, uh, from since to, from since 2018, everyone has been working on drafting it. The, the parties to this convention, which are, is almost all the all the world, and the convention secretariat, all of the observers, the constituencies, youth, women, indigenous peoples, local communities, the academia, the private sectors. Also, many UN agencies and other also conventions, and, and also the Agenda 2030. All of all of the events that are happening this year were supposed to focus on biodiversity because all of us we are trying to build like this momentum um, on the international policy arena to uh, to recognize the importance about mainstreaming biodiversity in all of these uh, instruments, no? in all of these or in all of the in all of the international work that all of these agencies are, are doing. But sadly, we are not in this point because, um, well, even if during the last couple of years, we have had multiple meetings to discuss the main points uh, that this new strategic plan must have. We have regional consultations in all of the, uh, in all of the geopolitical regions. We have thematic consultations on oceans, on sustainable use, on gender, all of the also the intersectional meetings of the city itself we have discussed about this uh, post 2020 GBF but uh, yes you are aware I uh, the the because of COVID 19 pandemic even uh, like the, the work that we have been developing during this, this couple of years was this uh, slowed down and um, it, it we can say it, it's not that it is really stopped but we can say that we are just like trying to, to figure out how we are going to, to continue the, level, the development of this strategic plan, because since these are supposed to be official negotiations meeting and we are not, uh, we are not able to, to, to have them face, uh, face to face, there are many challenges and many also like uh, institutional things that are, are need to be solved no? to, 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 go, to go with this. With this work, and um, yeah, as all of the all of, as all of the other uh, conventions, also the CBD work is uh, postponed until further notice to next year. 
and hopefully we will celebrate the CBD COP by June next year. And then uh, the, 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 the main objective of that, of that COP is to adopt the, the, the next strategic plan. But we don't have, uh, like, we don't have yet this strategic plan. So between now and until the next COP, we need to finalize that text. But it's going to be, I guess, really tough because uh, during these months we have had some meetings and digital processes, but there were there they they were so I I, I could say like chaotic and polemic because uh, due to connectivity issues, not all the countries and all the people can participate in an equitable and meaningful way. So there are a lot of things to negotiate regarding these commitments. But not all the people, or not all, every country, is like well reflected or well. Uh, they well, they cannot really participate in a complete manner in in this in these negotiations. So yeah, we are like kind of stuck in, in that. But hopefully, we will have this COP next year, and we hopefully we have like an ambitious enough strategic plan for the next ten years that really leads us to, the, to achieve the 2050 vision, which is to live in harmony with nature. And what we are expecting from this process is that we really uh, gather all views from all of the international conventions, from all of the international agendas. So for what we are aiming is that this strategic plan, it's not only for the CBD, but that we all people, that we all countries, all UN agencies are really committed to implement it in a complementary way, something like that. And, and I think that this idea of synergies between conventions, synergies between agendas, uh, it has a, like a super strong pillar regarding implementation and national capacities and that every year countries are like, uh, uh, acquiring more and more commitments and they say that they lack of capacity of resources to implement it so the idea to build synergies between convention it's not new and hopefully we can get there to help countries to like to implement all of these uh, all of their international um, agreements in a smooth way but from what I see the idea of these synergies and this take me to your second question is that we as youth around the world, we acknowledge that this, um, we need to acknowledge that the, we understand that these problems, as my colleague has said, are interconnected. That it's, uh, we cannot uh, think about an ecological crisis as like in silos. Like everything is related. Also the, the drivers of climate change, the drivers of biodiversity, the drivers of water pollution, water scarcity about like everything that it's like in, in a in a in a bad state in our world, it's interconnected, and the main and the root cause of this is our economic and our political system. You know, so mm -hmm. what we what we are doing as uh, at least uh, as far as I know, as youth constituencies, the youth constituency from CBD, which is given, the youth constituency for uh, UNFCCC, which is Yongo, and also the UN major group for youth and children. We are working together to build spaces, the youth from, from GLF also, like we are all collaborating to create spaces, to create dialogues, uh, uh, aiming to, 
to bring attention that the ecological crisis is uh, 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 is one thing and that it's not like different uh, different uh, like um, competing elements not like also that, that you mentioned it that like uh, we we know and we can feel that there is a kind of like a sense of competition between com conventions but for us as you that doesn't make sense because all of them need to be applied and all of them are important so we use uh, like having this clear that the environmental issues are not silos uh, we we also go one step further like when we when we speak about uh, uh, sustainable development and when we bring so social issues into the into this ecological crisis we are understanding uh, goes wider goes goes deeper also no? because we note that the ecological crisis has deep social roots and we as youth, we are clear that our problem is called civilizational crisis. It's not only about eco, eh, ecolo, ecology, no? It's not only about eh, natural science, but also or mainly about how we as human relate or how we, how, yeah, how we relate uh, with nature and how we are living in this world, no? So therefore, uh, I, I just want to, to conclude by saying that we know that uh, this has to be changed the economic and political system and that we are on it like we really as youth we are uh, putting a lot of effort to eradicate structural inequalities and transforming our own value system we are giving up our privileges and also we are super committed to live a, a more conscious life uh, this is not uh, like uh, an attack to other generations but we we can see that that we as generation we are really shaping our way of life to really uh, to live in a sustainable and in a more sustainable way for us, for all the people that are living and also for future generations. Thank you. Um, thank you both. I think if we are to sum up what you both said is that COVID, the COVID crisis has affected both conventions a lot. Um, but also that the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis have never been treated as a real crisis. And COVID really showcased that because our economy stopped, our way of life changed dramatically, and we have never done this either for biodiversity or climate loss and a climate crisis in the past. And it's also very inspiring for me as a young person involved in, in the environmental movement to hear from you as well that we are trying to avoid the the mistakes that the past generation have done, either as living unsustainably or working not together, but separately for the same issues. So this is very hopeful to hear from both of you. Um, we are almost out of time, but I really want to ask some more questions. So I would like to, to invite you to give me a, a short answer. Um, first, you, Tiagosi, on... Um, you have been very active in mobilizing young people from Africa and from the global south, and this is very, very inspiring. You also shared your story that you really sacrificed your personal resources to um, to be able to, to do all these things you're doing today. So what are the challenges, in short, that young people from the global south are facing? Um, and what can be done for that? What would be a great action point to to make uh, young people 
from the global south being able to participate in these arenas, taking into consideration that a lot of the things are now online? Yeah, very well, very well. Of course, um, it's quite challenging, you know, to, uh, to to live in the global south and have the, the same kind of effective participation that others from developing countries do have. Even for me, while I was serving as the, the focal point for younger last year, it was really challenging. And even years before that, sometimes it's electricity, you have a meeting that you have, because of course we've been doing virtual meetings uh, before the pandemic. We've been using Zoom for a long time before now. So, um, and, you know, sometimes I had to, to sleep in, in, the, in the office, you know, to use the internet in the office to work or to attend a meeting or to, to work on some form. You know, or to just fulfill my own tax for the constituency. Sometimes I had to, because I was working in the radio at some point as well as a broadcaster, a student broadcaster. So I had to sleep in the radio studio to be able to join the meeting with light and everything. It was really challenging. Sometimes you already schedule things to do, and from nowhere the electricity is gone, the internet is bad. These are really huge challenges for for people in the global south. And then the academic system is not tailored in such a way that it allows you, you know, to engage in activism or in other social work. For example, when I travel, I find that my friends are, that are coming with their university are getting credits for coming to, you know, to COP or for other conferences where they're even speaking or presenting you know, uh, papers or uh, making some presentations. And then I get no credits from my university. You know? <laughs> I actually, I get punished. You know, sometimes I have to, to fail quizzes or just because I, did, I didn't show up or I traveled and then, yeah, I have to fill it because because I traveled. So this kind of thing, it's 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 kind of restricts you. It doesn't give you the confidence. It doesn't give you the uh, the, the you don't have the support base, you know, to to flourish. Sometimes I've had to miss, you know, cancel a lot of events that could have been really significant for me, just because I wouldn't get a permission. And they don't really care, um, yeah, how much you mean to the world. You just have to write your your tests and your exams. Uh, they can't like. It, 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 there's no solution to personalize it to help you grow. So that, that, that is not obtainable in most places in the global south, and that is a challenge. In terms of now that events are basically virtual, of course, internet is a challenge. The cost of internet in the global south, especially in Africa, is the highest across the world, and that is a challenge in its own. Electricity, access to electricity, of course, you know, probably in Africa, over 600 million homes don't have electricity. So that's also a big challenge in its own. When, it, when things return to physical visa, visa also is a challenge. Funding to uh, to fly to those places are also challenges that should be. I, I don't. I know I don't have time to say more, so I probably would stop here. But yeah, these are really, really, really uh, big challenges that are facing youths in the global south. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry that I had to ask for a short response, but I also really want to hear from Amelia that I know she is um, working a lot, as she mentioned, and you now, now you all know that she's working a lot about gender rights, women and girls rights. And my question to her would be, what is the biggest challenge um, advocating for gender issues in an international convention? Well, I think that one of the greatest challenge is about the the understanding about the importance of women's rights within the environmental sector. No, like people are always asking and concerning about what does this is how this is related with what we are talking about. No, like when we are speaking about protected areas, when we are speaking about 
a species extinction where we are speaking about uh, gene drives or synthetic biolo biology, like what, how women and girls, uh, what do they have, how they are connected with this, no? Like the, 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 the main challenge is that the people uh, acting in these spaces, in, this, uh, in, the, in the international policy arena, and this is my personal view, <laughs> like most of them, they don't really get the, the importance about the, the issue, no? Like, so the, the first thing that we are trying to do uh, the, the people that we are engaged, the, the feminists that we are engaged in the biodiversity international police arena is to to try to raise awareness about the importance about about integrating women's rights and, and girls' rights into the biodiversity policy, and uh, and also like to explain to people which is the interlinkages and the connections between a biodiversity crisis. How does it affect differentiated and maybe greater or like deeper uh, how, how it affects uh, women and girls you know, in their daily life how it uh, also affects their future like uh, the inequalities girls uh, girls face during the during their first years of life will shape the way that they will grow up they, they, it, it will affect the opportunities they will have as as grown up as, as adults so what we are uh, like if we are not really uh, addressing how biodiversity crisis impacts on women and girls' life, we are like maybe increasing the burdens, uh, the workloads, the violences that women and girls are facing. So the main challenge is first of all raising awareness about the issue, and then uh, another challenge that we have as as as, as women's group, uh, I can say in the CBD context is that there is also a lack of training and knowledge about how international pol policy uh, spaces work now. So we only figure it out by, as, as all my colleagues mentioned, like we also invest in that, like we dedicate our free time, we dedicate our sleep hours, we dedicate our own money to attend these meetings, to engage ourselves in those meetings, to ex express the women's and girls' concerns and priorities. And, and what we received like uh, an, as an answer is like, uh, like these uh, questions no, about the, uh, or, or some comments about that, the, the, that, the, that, that that is not the space to ask for no, women's, women's equality, women's empowerment. But yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess that those are the, the main challenges. I hope I make sense on that. Trying to of keep course. it short. Of course, thank you very much for sharing. And this is true. Um, I hear from both of you that one of the main problems is funding, um, both for youth and for women, and, and capacity uh, to, to basically attend those meetings, capacity to be heard in those meetings. Um, we are now nine minutes over time, but I really enjoyed our discussion and I want to um, ask you both for, because our audience is mainly young people, young people that are eager to change the world. And I really want to hear from both of you, what would be the advice, again in short, as we are over time, the, the biggest advice you would give to a young person that is right now starting and really wants to get involved 
either on its local or regional or uh, international level to, to fight for climate and in, uh, biodiversity justice. So let's start with Tiagozzi and then we can hear from Amelia as well. Thank you. Yeah, I would say to every young person out there who, who is just starting off, uh, keep to your passion, do not change focus, do not lose focus, keep to your passion, what you can do effortlessly, what is it that inspires you, do not be swayed by your friends that you see, uh, you know, working in other sectors and they are flying around, it doesn't work that way, you don't necessarily have to fly around to, to make changes, just stick to your passion, everything would surely work out. Networking is super important. Uh, you must not have the biggest funding in the world. Once you have a good enough network, of course, people who know you closely, who know what you can do, uh, then you are pretty much you know, in, in, in the right place. And it's very important that every opportunity you get that you are able you know, to deliver very well. Do not take taxes that you cannot fulfill. Do not promise what you cannot deliver. Make sure that you, know, you give the best of you at every opportunity, but ultimately, keep true to your passion, uh, you will definitely grow in, in the end. Nobody knows it all. You must not be perfect today. It's a gradual process. You, you, you build your capacity along the way. You grow in the job and never be intimidated by people who probably have, you think are more experienced than you are older than you because you probably know more, way more uh, than them. I can say this probably because in, in our youth constituency, especially maybe for Yongo, uh, where I was focal point last year, we have a lot of competent young people very incredibly uh, amazing young people who, who know these policies, who, who I can tell you can do better jobs in their countries than their current leaders. So you, you, you have this confidence naturally flow, flow through you when you, you know, uh, exchange with, with your colleagues within this space. And very importantly also, please identify the, the, you, the international youth spaces that exist in the, in the various conventions that you are interested in, engage with them, be active, and uh, yeah, the sky will be a starting point. Thank you. Thank you, Chegosi, for these very inspiring words. And Amelia, your advice to the young people that are just starting. Yeah, I have like both for um, citizen participation, for example. But those spaces, those spots are remain empty because people, we don't know that they exist. And speaking on my experience, like, our countries, our government, they are not going to spread the word about these spots because um, citizen participation or public participation is not really what they are aiming for. No? So our challenge and uh, on, on my advice is to, uh, um, to research about which are those spaces that you already can be participate in. Like, as my colleague mentioned it also, like, don't, um, we don't really need to be in the policy arena to, to do changes. Uh, the little changes could be more easy to be done in, in the local spaces, in our municipalities, for example. And the second, the second point is to train yourself. Like, there's always something to learn. For, for example, on my, on, on my experience, I, I, I come from the social science, but I'm, as, since I'm working on the Biodiversity Convention, Every day, I'm trying to understand something else, like, as I mentioned, gene drives, GMOs, like um, conservation in situ, conservation ex situ. There's always something to learn. So don't stop learning. And uh, yeah, try also to, to break out these, uh, these silos of Western science 
and also uh, my, my other other piece of advice I could share is like to value every kind of knowledge like not everything is about science not everything is about universities and college like there are many other things that you can only learn by being with people in the ground particularly for those interested in biodiversity there is something that you only can learn being in nature being with indigenous peoples being with local communities and trying because maybe it as in, in, in my case because i'm not part of those communities we can we only try to understand the way they feel about about biodiversity uh, unite only collectively we will make ourselves heard only in networks and as teams we can make ourselves heard so um, yeah we can work individually we can make our careers individually but from my experience on, on, on and what i can say is like that doesn't really lead us further far away what we need to do is like to work together and as I mentioned it also like what we are doing as constituencies from each or, or, of the UN convention it's we realize that so we are now working together uh, sharing information sharing experiences building uh, events together building uh, uh, spaces like this and this is a, a super great example and the last point is to persevere like changes are not uh, not making a, in one night projects don't consolidate from one year to the next so remain a remain passionate and uh, maintain your conviction convene yeah your conviction to live in harmony with nature and because at the end this is all about to really we as humanity change our way of life to to, to convert our the, the, the way as we see nature like we really need to understand that we are part of one thing that is our planet we are just one element more element in this this reality and we need to live fully in, into that so because what it, it is because at this point what is at, at stake is our, our present not we, we don't really need to think about the future our present is with is in, in risk uh, in, and not only human present, but also about all, all of the species that with which we shared this world. And but the very very last, just relax and enjoy. Even if this sounds like this is a big challenge and a big thing to do, like something that we used used to do as youth, young activists is to to overwhelm and to also like to work tons of hours. But at some point, we need to stop and to live our life also. Thank you, thank you. It's so inspiring to hear from both of you how connections and and meeting with people and keeping in keeping other people in your network and learning from other people and being confident is is so important. So I am very humbled and grateful that you joined me here today, uh, Chiagodzi and Amelia, Amelia and Chiagodzi. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us, for sharing your time with us. I am waiting very big things to see from you and I'm sure that our audience as well is, is so inspired by your words. If you enjoyed this episode, join us again next week when we'll be speaking with another incredible young environmental activist about intersectionality and why it's so crucial in this vastly unequal world we live in. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. 
And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.